Trey Lewis with Good Landing Recovery, and you're listening to The Comeback. Welcome back. Very excited to be with you today and to use our platforms to be able to spread a message of positivity inundated with so much negativity and the world of politics and news and just everywhere we look that there's just destruction and and things that um, are causing internal conflict and anger and stuff like that that we want to be able to use this podcast and the platforms at Good Landing to be able to encourage people and to bring a message of hope and to be able to inspire people to to run after God and to know that they're loved and that He has a plan for their lives and it's so much better than trying to do life apart from Him. In addiction, you know, you hear the overwhelming uh, statistics of, of people who don't make it and the poor success rates. And while a lot of those things are true, it doesn't have to be that way. And we want to change the game and to be able to move the needle and, 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 and to remind people that there is hope and there is a real way out of this. I've got my friend uh, Brandon with me this morning, who is the second uh, graduate, second client of, of Good Landing Recovery, you know, just even whenever I see him, just a reminder of those early days when, you know, we didn't have all of the nice things that we have today and uh, the large staff, but but those were just some of the most precious days of, of Good Landing to know that, that God was still doing great work there. And so to see him come in um, as the second client and to to walk his journey um, though it hasn't been perfect, uh, it's been real. And then now he has put in the work and he is on staff at Good Landing Recovery. Um, so many things to celebrate about his life. But this morning, I want him to share his story to encourage you or if you know a, a loved one or a friend who's out there struggling to know that God will do it in Brandon's life, he will do it in your life, or your friend's life, or your family member's life. Brandon, tell us your story. Yeah, so I'm so excited to be here with everyone today and just be able to share a little bit about my story and, you know, the wonderful things that the Lord has done in my life. So I was, uh, you know, born into a pretty, you know, good household. Uh, my mom was a single mother when she had me, so my my dad was pretty much out of the picture from the beginning, uh, my biological dad, and, you know, from the earlier childhood years, um, he kind of was in and out, and uh, my mom eventually got married when I was about six years old, and that, that brought us to Georgia, um, and, I, and I share this part because this was kind of significant, I feel like, to uh, later years in my life, but so the guy that she ended up marrying um, ended up becoming a abusive alcoholic, and I, and I witnessed a lot of traumatic things in those earlier years from about the age of six to probably six to eight years old, um, just, you know, verbal abuse, uh, physical abuse, you know, my mom's end, and as well, some some on my end. So um, that was, she ended up divorcing him, and we ended up just being, again, me and my mother, and it was just us on our own for a little while until she ended up meeting who today I I consider my dad. And they got married. Um, I I never had any issues with, uh, you know, drug addiction at a young age. I was prescribed a medication for ADHD at a pretty young age as well. I probably started taking Dexedrine around seven or eight years old, um, and I took it all the way up through high school. You know, I never really understood, you know, what it meant to self-medicate or to try to try not to deal with things, but I knew that 
uh, from a young age, I always felt very socially uh, unaccepted um, by, you know, by kids around me. Um, you know, I played sports and did a lot of things like that, but I just felt like I never fit in. I always felt like I was trying to find ways to, to fit in. I remember in high school, you know, I, I had received the Lord when I was at a young age. Um, I grew up, you know, really close with my youth pastor, and, you know, there was a, there was a period where he, um, he and his wife actually had gotten divorced, and he had moved back to live with his parents, and um, he was kind of a mentor to me. Uh, my early high school years, and, and I no longer had him, and um, so, you know, I went through some stuff with a breakup with a girl I would been with for about two years, so I, I pretty much just kind of started running wild. I, um, I tried uh, marijuana for the first time uh, when I was a junior in high school, and uh, I started experimenting with alcohol, and I, I just realized from right off the get-go that, uh, you know, alcohol made me feel a way to where you know, I didn't care what you thought about me. I didn't care about, you know, what what was going on. You know, it, I just it numbed it out, and I didn't have to. I didn't have to feel anything, and that was pretty much my first, I would say, uh, love that I had with something um, that changed the way I felt. And from that point on, anytime I was going to a social setting, uh, whether it would be you know just to hang out with friends or you know, anything, I had to make sure that there was some kind of alcohol uh, or something there to, 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 to change the way I was feeling. So, you know, that way I could, you know, feel like I could be the person that everybody wanted me to be, the life of the party, you know, whatever you want to call it. That went on pretty much for the rest of my high school years. And then after I got out of high school, I found that I kind of didn't really have quite as much social interaction. Uh, I went straight into working. And so, you know, the, the, the desire really to drink wasn't there as much. Um, but I did find uh, there on my, on my free time that I, I began to abuse and uh, misuse the prescription uh, medication that I, that I mentioned earlier that I had been on um, for ADHD. And, um, you know, versus, you know, instead of taking it as prescribed, I was taking, you know, double the amounts or... Uh, I was taking the prescribed daily dose within a short period of time, and then when I heard twenty, when I turned twenty-one, you know, obviously I was legally able to access uh, alcohol, and so that that started the whole thing with you know drinking again. Um, that I would say that the, this time it, you know, I, I started first off with drinking with my buddies. You know, we would go out to bars and clubs and places like that, you know, and we would drink. And, and I just remember just feeling so awkward because they would always just look at me like, like, dude, like, why are you drinking your fifth beer or fourth beer when we're still on our first beer? You know, or why are you always the one that goes out and gets so intoxicated when everybody else is just trying to have a good time? So I just got to the point, instead of looking at it as like, well, hey, maybe I have a problem, I'm like, well, hey, you know, I'm just not going to do this anymore with y'all. I'm just going to drink by myself you know, do my own thing. And so that's what I did. Um, and I just kind of, you know, retracted into my own world. Um, you know, I, I abused my, my medication. And when I didn't have it, I was, you know, drinking and just doing my own thing. And uh, this went on for about a year. And uh, 2014, I went through my first treatment center. So I got out of there. And um, it was probably about three months later, um, I was actually getting my hair cut 
And uh, the lady that had been cutting my hair actually um, was hooking me up with, with, with some, you know, with, med with, with pills. And uh, she told me that she didn't have anything, but she had some, some meth. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm, I said, I'm not going to touch that. You know, you can forget about that. And um, so I just, you know, was like, no, no, I'm not doing that. And she, you know, she eventually talked me into, you know, wanting you try it. And uh, it's, you know, it's no different than what you were pretty much already doing. And, you know, I finally gave in and that went, and I tried meth for the first time. And that was, that opened a door um, to a road that I had no idea what I was about to get myself into. To sum things up a little bit, you know, I, th that opened up a door and I ended up going into a addiction with, with meth, um, for a pretty, uh, short period of time <clears throat> until I found myself, uh, again, in another treatment center. Um, you know, God always had a very unique way of, uh, boxing me in pretty quickly. I I'm very thankful for that. Um, you know, I think I, you know, I might have been going on for about three months, and I found myself in a treatment in a treatment center in, in in South Georgia. You know, I was down there for about a year, and I came back, and eventually I, I came back home. Um, and I know I I thought that it was over with. I thought that you know I was about to come up on a year clean, that things were going well, um, and I started hanging out with the wrong people again. Um, started running with some old buddies from back in the day, and uh, one of them just so happened to be sell we were selling drugs. That opened the door for me to get back on it, and that time it took me down a lot further um, than I ever wanted to go. Uh, I ended up um, stealing about $3,000 worth of stuff from my stepdad and, uh, and, and Lou for money to pay for, for my drug addiction. It wasn't too long after that I was in a I was in a position where I knew my family was was going to press some charges on me. So I decided that you know they gave me an ultimatum. They said either you're going to go to to this program for a year, or you know we're we're gonna we're gonna you know press charges and you're gonna have to deal with a, with a a felony charge of you know theft and possession of a stolen firearm. So um, you know I said okay. You know I agreed to uh, to go to this program. And I did a whole year there, you know, and and I think through all these, the course of, of all these programs, and, and I mention these is because I don't think that I truly had in these programs a real encounter um, with the Lord like I did at Good Landing. I, I feel like, you know, yes, was the Lord present in some of these programs? Were they faith-based? Yes, some of them were. But I just don't feel like the Lord was, was moving there and and. and some of the ways like he was when I came to Good Landing. Just to fast forward a little bit, um, so I graduated the program, the, the one-year program. You know, I felt like things were going well. I, again, I had a year clean um, that, I, that I acquired through being in the program. You know, I actually went down the road of uh, became a certified personal trainer. You know, I've always had a passion for that, and, you know, things were going well. And I thought that, you know, I, could still, ha I still had it in me to drink. You know, I was like, okay, well, you know, I never dealt with a reservation of, of alcohol. And so I thought I could, you know, I had it in me to drink. And, you know, obviously I think I knew in the back of my mind it was a bad idea. But again, like many of us, you know, we want it our way. We want to do it our way. So, you know, I gave myself to that. And um, I started drinking again. 
and that escalated very quickly. Um, I was working a full-time job as a uh, head trainer for a gym in Gainesville. Uh, I was in a relationship with a woman. It was a very toxic relationship, um, very enabling, and uh, she was allowing me to live at her house. I was drinking, you know, probably close to, you know, um, about half a fifth of vodka a day. And um, that was that was the life I was living, and I felt like there was really no no consequences at the time until uh, later on that year. Um, I decided that I was going to make a drive uh, from, from Gainesville to, to Loganville, which is about a 45-minute drive, and I was in a complete alcohol uh, blackout. Um, and I ended up making it all the way home, and uh, I finally hit a, I hit a mailbox and, and drove off. And uh, that led me into my first actual legal consequence um, from, from, this, from this addiction that I've been struggling with. Um, ended up getting on probation for that and, um, you know, faced some, you know, some, some minor consequences, but I still hadn't learned. Um, and it was later on that year where I pretty much kind of hit a bottom. I, I had come home one day. And uh, I was staying. I was actually back living at my parents' house. I went out to the liquor store. I told my mom I was going to work, and I went to the liquor store, bought a bottle of vodka, and I drank about I don't know, probably close to most of the whole thing. And came home, and mom told me she's like, "That's it. You're you know you're you're not staying here anymore. You're you're out." I just was like, "You know what? We'll screw it." You know, and so I left, and I knew where I could get drugs. And I knew a guy that was selling it. So, um, you know, I went over to his house. He wasn't there. And I was obviously under the influence. So I wasn't thinking in, the, in my right mind. And so I decided, well, if he's not here, I'm just going to kick his door down and take what he has. So that's what I did. I mean, I had reached such a place of, of desperation and hopelessness that I just didn't care anymore. And so I kicked, his, kicked in his door, you know, stole uh, a good amount of meth. And um, obviously I'd, I used it. I was driving around town for I don't even know how long, and then I came to, and I, I guess I had, uh, you know, been um, driving my car pretty recklessly in a, uh, in a in a parking lot. I don't know if I was doing donuts or burnouts or whatever it might have been, but I was at a uh, a Muslim mosque, and um, these people were like telling me like, "Hey man, like you're super intoxicated. Like we just want you just to stay here. We don't want you leaving." And uh, I think they, I think I had the fear they were gonna call the cops, so I left. And then I woke up again, and I was parked in front of somebody's house. My car had been driven out of gas. I had no idea. I thought the battery died. And I called up a friend who I had recently met, and he told me he said, "Hey man, you can come stay here with me." And got staying there, and he told me about this place. He said, "I know this guy named Trey Lewis who's who's starting this program called Good Landing." And I said, "Oh well." I mean, I obviously had no desire to go to another program, but you know, like the Lord always does, He, you know, He He worked in my heart and through the support of some some family members and um, you know others. They were just like, "Hey, look, this is the deal, and you're going to do it." So I ended up going in there, stepped into Good Landing, and you know, I came to a a realization that that something had to change. I mean, the Lord there just radically. Uh, encountered me in a way that he had never done in the past. And, you know, um, I just remember having to tell myself that I had to submit, you know, everything that I thought that I knew, you know, everything that I wanted, everything, everything had to go. I had to basically learn and um, start from scratch. 
so that's what I did. I, I laid it down, and um, you know I ended up finishing the program strong, and um, ended up going into an internship. One of the best decisions that I had ever made. Um, and then about a year ago, um, I fit. You know, continuing forward, I came around and Trey asked me to come work at Good Landing uh, earlier on this year, and uh, it's just such a blessing to be back here. It's awesome, man. Really incredible to, you know, just hear the, the journey and, uh, you know, just sitting here with you. Obviously, people can't see you um, since there's no, no, no camera on the podcast, but, uh, you know, you don't look like a meth addict. You were, um, you know, head personal trainer, um, had, no, you know, an outside of appearance that if, you know, somebody were, were looking at you, you wouldn't fit the description of someone who was was addicted to meth or who was about to to relapse and go back out there. So as people listen to this, you know, I think that it's important that number one that you realize that if you see somebody in your family that's struggling, um, to go ahead and to confront them. That's what I that's what I do love about your family that they gave you an ultimatum. They weren't going to enable you. Too, they just said, hey, if you if you want to charge for you know felony burglary or whatever it was, or you can go to treatment. And and they were willing to love you when you could not love yourself. And so that that's another thing that I think that's so important to us who are family members or that if you've got somebody who's out there struggling, that when they get into that place, a lot of times we look at them and, and, we're, and we're thinking, well, they just need to you pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make a good decision. Well, the reality is, is that when they're strung out or when they're addicted and they're in the middle of active addiction, they're no longer choosing. The drugs are choosing for them and so as family members, we oftentimes have to intervene into their lives in that we will have to, they make a bad decision or whatever it might be that we can leverage that and say, hey, either you're going to treatment or we are going to pursue legal action um, to make sure that we get you into a safe place. And, you know, I think that's really cool how your family was always able to, to step in and, and do that for you at some really critical moments. How important was that in your life? Yeah. Did you see it? Man, it was, you know, <laughs> it's so crazy. I, I'm so thankful, though. At the time, I absolutely hated it. But, you know, I had the, the especially my mother, you know, she she was, uh, she was all up in my business. Um, and I'm just thankful that she was like that because, you know, looking back on it, um, working in this side of things now and being on the other side of the fence, you know, you, you, I often see things where it's like, you know, people don't always know what's going on. Uh, with certain parents, you know, they don't even know what's going on with their children. But my mom, she always made it her business. You know, I mean, she, she especially for the period of time like where I was living with her, you know, she told me, uh, even at one point in my addiction, she, she was like, you know, uh, came up to my room one time and I had no idea. She, she had taken my wallet and she had taken my keys. And she said, I know you're using meth. I know you're, you're, you're about to go get some more. I'm taking two things and you have no money and you have no access to your car. And um, I think I was absolutely livid. And somehow that, that's kind of when the whole thing started um, with me. You know, I had access to a phone and I had access to things that were worth value. And that's where the thing started with me stealing and, and, and using things as, as trade for drugs. Um, and basically I was having people come to the house at the crazy hours of the night. But I feel like, you know, if I hadn't had uh, a mother and a father and, and, and people that were in my life that were very critical to me that, um, you know, I, I don't even know if I'd still be living right now. 
um, because just due, due to the way and the nature of the way that I, I used and the way I drank, um, mm-hmm. I, I think I was I was about to go to a, a pretty early grave yeah. at the way I was going. So good. You know, there's a, a saying, and I'll uh, tone it down a little bit, but it, it is, you, you can't save your face and your butt at the, at the same time. And what happens a lot of times with, with parents, and you've got children, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, if they end up in treatment, everybody's going to find out. Or sometimes you'll see the addict who is barely hanging on to some job. Or let's say that they're a very high-functioning addict. Their life is, is unmanageable in the fact that they're addicted, but somehow they're able to maintain some type of, of employment and oftentimes the, the loved ones are saying, hey, if we disrupt this or we interrupt their lives, then, you know, then it's going to bring so much shame. But, but here's the reality. If you don't do it, you know, the chances of them overdosing and eventually they're going to lose the job anyway, or they're probably not able to accumulate any type of real wealth because of the poor decision making and the bad spending decisions that they make and all of that. So it, it only makes sense to intervene into the person's life, even if it's uncomfortable. And that's what I, you know, when I think about, I, I know Brandon's mom and, and you know, you think, well, you know, oh my gosh, I don't like confrontation. And if you're not wired for confrontation, you know, reach out to us, reach out to a professional that says, hey, you know, somebody's addicted right now and here's what love needs to look like. Love doesn't need to look like you keeping your mouth shut and you just kind of staying in the background and just hoping that one day they're going to snap out of it because the truth is that God forbid that it ends up in an overdose. And the longer that they stay out there, the harder and the more um, you know stuff that they they do, and the more you know the the stronger the habits become. And it, it's better to intervene as soon as you possibly can to to be able to reach them. Um, so that they've got a better chance of entering into recovery and that that the family would get on a united front and everybody would have the same voice to be able to speak into that person's life as, hey, we love you and we care about you and we love you so much that we're not going to enable this behavior anymore. So that's going to look differently for every individual. We realize that, that, that people are wired differently. And so there's not just this blanket approach to interventions. Um, is the same way that whenever you're coaching athletes that, you know, some athletes are going to respond to a more direct way. Some will respond in um, a, a more gentle way, but it's always, but they're never going to sacrifice truth no matter what the approach is. So um, if that's something, or you have someone who's out there struggling, please reach out to us and we would be more than happy to tailor a plan to be able to intervene into their lives. Uh, it's been awesome hearing Brandon's story, and I hope that you are encouraged. I hope that it's a reminder that God can do it in Brandon's life. He can do it in your life. He can do it in your loved one's life. And I look forward to seeing you guys next time on The Comeback. Guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to serve you. If you or someone in your family is struggling with addiction, please give us a call. It's 770-570-7422.